You're listening to another episode of Date with the Night, and today's guest is Daniel Delora, aka Asian Dan, blogger, musician, and DJ. How are you, Dan? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on the pod. I've been following you for a while now, and Dave One of Chromio said you got to talk to Asian Dan. He's amazing, and he's got a lot of interesting stories from this time, so I'm so happy to be speaking to you today. Oh, no. Well, amazing. Thank you, Dave, for connecting us and... Yeah, through the power of the web, we are here. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I opened up my first Paps Blue Ribbon for this podcast specifically. I've not done that before, wow. so I wanted to kind of get into the mindset. So I could smell it already. <laughs> yeah, it tastes kind of interesting. I didn't know if I would like it. I couldn't remember how I felt about it because it's been a while since I've really been drinking any Paps Blue Ribbon, but it's not too bad. <laughs> You started your blog, Asian Man Dan, in 2007, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay, so this was while you were attending college in Boston and you Mm -hmm. were taking the Chinatown bus Mm -hmm. to party in New York as often as you could. What parties were you frequenting during this era? Studio B, going to all those parties out in Williamsburg. That was like the parties that I'd hit up, whether it was like Mastercraft or like when Justice made their way over here. Even before, I guess, my like whole introduction into the bloghouse genre and you know energy, I was studying abroad in the spring of 2007, and I went to Paris for the Ed Banger fourth year anniversary party. What just came? I know like Phantom, I think, just started to come out that track, and like I was just obsessed with like you know we are your friends, and like I was like let's go to Paris with a few of our friends, and we went to this party not knowing what to expect, literally walking in in time for Justice the DJ, and like blew my mind, you know and. I was like, I'm going to start a blog. So then the seeds were planted there. Yeah. What was the main objective of starting your blog? Well, the way I discovered music, I'm like Napster generation. It was such a magical gateway into whatever genres or bands, you know. I remember even early in 2007, like 05, when I was in high school, I would be like, okay, let me, where would I find music or where would I discover what's new? And I remember going to like Brooklyn Vegan, that blog, and like early versions of Pitchfork and Stereogam. And like, this was even before like MP3 sharing on the sites were there. And I was like, where am I going to like find shows to go to? I lived in New York. I remember high school, I'd go to all like early CMJ shows. And it was cool trying to like retrace my first seeds of exposure to this. I remember I was really into Mars Volta and all these weird bands and CMJ lined them up, Mars Volta and The Rapture. Mm. And they were playing Roseland Ballroom. I didn't know who they were. They were opening for them. And I was just like, these are dancey punk kids. And like, it was probably my first time I was exposed to like dudes on stage with 909s and synthesizers. And I remember they played that track, Olio, the opening track from Echoes. I remember seeing everyone, their arms around each other, like twisting knobs. And like, that was my first exposure to that. And like, I like didn't realize how years later it would plant the seeds of like, okay, yeah, this is like dance music, the intersection of that with indie and like punk. So like going, even going back to that, like I was into like bands like Play Bass. I love Death Move of 1979. Yes. Toronto's finest. And I love romantic rights. I was like, whoa, you could do that with a bass guitar. That's wild. Do you remember VBS.TV, Vice's like... Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so when I was like on all those sites, like, you know, when Brooklyn Vegan and all that, like I remember seeing like embedded videos for this and I was like, huh, what's this? And like checking out their music video there. And then that's where I discovered Chromio for the first time. That just set me down on like the rabbit hole of what Vice was, and you know, everything that we know them to be. <laughs> so yeah, that just got me down the road of wanting to share. Mm-hmm. 07, I mean, all those remixes and stuff and... It's interesting because I've been going through the archives of Asian Mandan, the blog spot and everything, just to see like, oh yeah, what was the important 
things I like release first and all that. I just wanted to share stuff. And it was like kind of coincidental that my taste was going to be this thing that like became what Bloghouse was, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. You're in Lena Baskell's book, Never Be Alone Again. There's a chapter teaching the rock kids to dance again. Mm -hmm. So everything you said holds true to that entire chapter. And you were quoted saying, I did not hesitate to share any MP3s I could <laughs> upload onto Zshare. What inspired you to kind of share this music on your blog? Going back to like that spirit of like Napster mm -hmm. back in the day when I could have access to any, anyone had access or like Napster, LimeWire. It's that power of like planting the seeds. There's no repercussions. If I put this on this site, like Zshare, Mediafire, and these things like, okay, cool. Like the link is dead after it gets downloaded or you get a DMCA report. You could just upload it again, you know? There's sort of that expiration date too of a link dying. It gave you this feeling like, oh, I was here first to like get these songs. There was no data yet. Mining the numbers of seeing like, you know, when the Zshare link is dead or taken down, like you can't see how many was downloaded. Also, there was no ways to really see who was checking the blog, which is pretty wild. Like you could like put like a little thing to embed how many people were coming. But early blog days of Blogspot, it like felt like it's like a CB radio. You're just like throwing stuff out there and seeing. You don't know who's actually reading it. Yeah. There was no Twitter yet. There was no like other outside ways to like direct you to your site. Yeah. Hype Machine turned the blog game into a highly relevant arms race. What blogs did you love and which ones inspired you to kind of keep up or compete? That was a big thing too. So like the first time you ever felt included in this circle of you know, blog house blogs, it's like when you're listed on someone's links or blog roll, I guess. Yeah. That's like the top eight of blogs, I guess. You know, if you were like someone linking back to you. Obviously, if someone posted something and then like, it ended up on their blog, like you just reposted. I remember so many times with people like, oh, why didn't you credit so-and-so? So obviously like the big ones in Paris back in the day, so like Kids by Colette or like Fluo Kids or like Kids by Colette became like LA friendly. And it was just really funny kind of like hearing all the um, gossip from like everyone of like, oh, this blogger is stealing stuff. The label gets so mad at them and everything. But like Disco Bell, amazing blog, Palms Out, those guys were awesome. And then once a hype machine was introduced, I remember the day I was added to it, to the hype machine directory, you felt like you made it in a way because suddenly all this stuff that you're posting gets pulled to their site. And then once you start seeing people starting to vote it up, yeah. it was weird that like suddenly you as a blogger get started to gain some sort of notoriety. And then sometimes like it would take the shine of the artist. That was definitely an interesting time when the blogger started to become bigger than like the artist or the the music itself, you know? Yeah. Even I talked to a lot of artists from this time, and maybe if they didn't agree with it back then, now looking back, they're like, no, you know what? It really put people onto our music, and we really appreciated it, and we kind of missed that time. So it's interesting that there was this sort of dissent at the beginning, but I think a lot of people look back at this and think it was very much a grassroots kind of deal. Like It was very made for the people by the people. And you loved Ed Banger and claimed to be the first to leak what became known as the <laughs> Justice Exodus mix. Yes. I remember that era of like, so like Fabric Live was doing all those mixes, right? You know, everyone, Simeon, Mobile Disco, or like Errol Alkin, or obviously the most famous, I think my favorite is Spank Rock. Yes. Fabric Live. And the Diplo one was like amazing too. And like, you know, I'd always hear stories about like, I think it was in the Spank Rock one. They put that Justin Timberlake song on there with the acoustic guitar. Yes. And I remember they couldn't clear it. So apparently they had someone just replay the acoustic guitar mashed up over it. But like, I remember hearing like at that time, it was like, oh, 
08, 09, I don't remember exactly, but Justice was talking about, oh, we're going to put together like their mix. There was all that news and then suddenly like Fabric was like, oh, it's not coming out. And I was like, oh shit, that fucking sucks. And all these forums that I'd be on, of, I think it was called French Touch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, blog, this forum, but someone there was like friends with the guys. Justice gave out CDs of this mix to all their friends as like a Christmas thing. And I don't know if you ever seen the artwork of it originally, but it was like Busy P like covered in a salad or something. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, yeah, it's like literally like a, a bowl of salad thrown on his head. This guy sent it to me and I was like, this is crazy. And I was like, this has to be out there. And I remember I put it up on Zshare on my blog really late at night, went to bed. Literally the next day, it had 20,000 downloads. That's crazy. And then obviously like the Zshare link would like hits limit and then it, the link went dead. But I was just like, whoa, that was like my first time of like realizing the reach of like my blog. Yeah. I've talked to Busy P a few times. And he was like, yeah, dude, that was you. <laughs> like yeah. when that happened. Like there was probably some like fallout, obviously hearing from like Fabric or even from Justice, but they didn't care, you know? Yeah. It was a really good mix. I actually loved it so much. Like even the party with Afia and Justice going into- The chic. Yes. And then followed by Frankie Valley. I was like, this is honestly such an insane mix. Mm -hmm. Let's hope it's kind of brought back into the ether and we can party to that sometime in the Christmas season, hopefully. It's soon. It's like 15 years, right? I think since Cross came out. So- I'm sure like something will happen, you know. Um, Cross was such an insane album. I remember when that dropped and everybody was talking about it. It was referenced for mostly, I would say, every soundtrack. People wanted this justice sound. And I was like, good luck on that. <laughs> really specific. It still is today. Oh, yeah, for sure. And any pitch meetings, like you'll hear someone like, yeah. So. Yeah. And I was talking to Dave one of Chromio recently. He was just on the podcast and he Amazing. quoted you saying that the internet betrayed us. Can you kind of elaborate on what you meant by this when you were talking to Date One of Chromio about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I was saying, once data collection became a thing and like no doubt hype machine was important to that, once labels, brands, you know, promoters started to see, like there was a time like promoters were booking DJs because of the numbers they would get on hype machine, right? Yeah. This is all pre-Spotify before like, Spotify has become the metric, right? Or like yes. Instagram numbers of followers. Like you talk to promoters, they're like, oh, we can't book you because you don't have a following on Instagram or like your numbers on Spotify are low. Unfortunately, as great as Hype Machine was, I think it like started, it was like this snowball effect there. When I say that the internet betrayed us, it was in that sense of the mining. Mm-hmm. Being able to put numbers this to like and quantifying definitely took away the value of the curator, the blogger. It was pretty wild. Like when brands were hitting me up, like literally like Scion, they would hit me up and be like, hey, you know, we're doing this series of, you know, you could kind of curate it, but like, here's this one DJ and we want you to like have him like, you know, keep, come up with some sort of like editorial thing we can run for like X amount of weeks. And, you know, like when you start taking money from there, you're just like, huh, there's like a sort of like pale energy, but like, I feel like I spun it right. Like, so that was a, I think I did with Todd Edwards. I did this whole like top 10 of like, what are your favorite songs? That was like an interesting feeling. And then, I mean, obviously Red Bull gets really into it and like suddenly yeah. like energy drinks or I don't know if you remember when Mountain Dew had their own label too, uh, Green yeah. Label Sound. They were giving money and like free reign to these artists to like let them make things. It was funny. So like when Lena did her talk in New York back in December, I was like part of that. And I brought up Green Label Sound and I was like, do you remember like there was a... Foster Domus and Caroline Polachek song that they released only 
via a soda. I was re-listening to it fairly recently and it's still really good. And you can't find that anywhere anymore. I don't even know if I've heard that. Like I was a huge fan of Carolyn Polachek and a huge fan of Chairlift, but I don't know if I've heard that song. So I'm going to have to go and look it up after this. Yeah, it's on YouTube somewhere. You can find it there. It started to feel just like the numbers game, you Mm -hmm. know, like we still live in that era. And I honestly don't think we're going to ever step out of it. So it's pretty interesting that like, you're just being watched all the time, you know, you're being turned into this data number, but it's, you know, some people play the game, right? Some people know how to do it. And there's always something that pops up and does something cool and is able to cut through the noise. And yeah, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of like the last time I discovered something that felt pure and like, I would say like Jay Paul, first time he put his track on MySpace, the BTSTU, that was 2010. That was like, for me, the sort of end of discovering music without it being handed off to you somehow, whether through an algorithm or something that wasn't a human. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, when did this shift happen in your opinion? Like what year around what time? I guess as things start to like splinter off more into like, either you're going to like be really underground and cool and hide, or you're going to like, embrace it and go full like, full EDM, you know? Yeah. The full, like, hair metal DJ energy. There's nothing wrong with either of them, but I thought it was, like, pretty interesting that you kind of have to choose how you present yourself. Yeah. Early 2000s New York indie. Those guys weren't, like, really figuring out how to position themselves, you know? Everyone kind of looked and felt the same, but, like, the sound was unique versus now there's sort of, like, this feedback loop of, like, oh, wow, like, the internet will tell me right away. Twitter will give me that feedback loop. You're sort of mining and like crowdsourcing who you're gonna be yeah and you know i think we still live in that age no doubt because we see how the path has worked from like whatever instagram influencer soundcloud dj Bandcamp, indie cool guy hyper pop person like you could see these paths you can take and like if you don't stay on these paths and if you try to stray it's so hard for the algorithm to like pinpoint you and then you just get lost in the, the noise of it all right no, that's so true, especially in the book of references, like how I think A-Track said this, like you can't have those low sample rates or whatever because you need to be picked up by the algorithm. You need to be able to yes, fit into yes. a playlist. Yeah, Do you yeah. see anything on the horizon that could indicate a rebalancing of power for independent artists? I mean, it's pretty wild that like we have tools to get our stuff out there that makes it easier than ever. But it's like... How do you cut through the noise? And I don't know. I think it's like about just having smaller communities. Like, like me personally, like I, I don't rely on the Spotify algorithm or any of that. So like I message a friend or people, I go, hey, what do you listen to? You know? Yeah. I even think more so than ever when people share stuff on like Instagram stories or like, oh, this is the thing I'm listening to Spotify or like screenshotting whatever you're listening on Apple Music and posting. That actually gets more followers and people. Yeah. I feel like Twitter is where you're sharing like YouTube links to like YouTube is like the new crate digging, you know, there's so many, so much stuff there that's not on streaming services. And that feels like the most wild west blog Napster energy type of space. Obviously everyone's talking about how NFTs and for music, that'll be such a thing. And I find it interesting that like the NFT space is like the anti aesthetic space. Yeah. It's very close to like what, Bloghouse, like the music, the energy, like bad quality, MP3 is crunchy, distorted. Like it doesn't make sense. It shouldn't work. And then somehow it becomes a big thing. Yeah. The NFT space definitely, it's echoing that energy, but 
at the same time, I think the cycle of it all, it has moved so quickly that unfortunately it feels like being gatekept already. Yeah, There's a lot of people like all the Silicon Valley heads and all these early doctor evangelists are like, you know, screaming, saying their service and their platform and the way they will do it is going to be the best. So everything just gets splintered off, you know? Yeah. I do ask this to every person that comes on the pod and people might be getting sick of it, but I do find the world of NFTs interesting as it both like confuses and amazes me. Yeah. I can see some value in it potentially, like you sort of touched on this already, but do you think that NFTs have the potential in any way to sort of disrupt the streaming industry? Or do you think that it's like you just mentioned, it's just being gatekept and like, we're not going to see that. It's such a gamble. It's like, if you're an established artist, you definitely need to be an established whatever musician, DJ, producer, graphic designer, someone with a following, and you already have to be out there. Like, for example, with me and my, my music and my band, Good Night. Okay, I'm going to put something there eventually in the NFT space, but it's probably going to be like a B-side. Yeah. You're not going to put your best thing there because it might just dissolve, you know, and get blown away. It's precious. Music is the thing that's fucking awesome and is yeah. real and honest. And it's hard to take something so like, emotional and real and put it into like this sort of something that just gets swept away it's it's interesting because i also think you need to turn the nft hustle into like a full-time thing that's gonna like whether you're on all these discords or in these private forums whispering in people's ears saying oh i'm gonna someone so and so is releasing this new thing and that's gonna take up so much more time than like making your music so it's so crazy that like to be a musician you have to like be the marketing person now and it's hard to focus on the music then you know and like especially when like last like peak pandemic like daniel Eck from spotify is like oh you musicians you gotta like you gotta start making more stuff you don't have time anymore to just like release one thing and like wait in between the cycles that's it yeah it's fodder for the you know the social media machine i guess even going back to like what we were talking about the internet betraying us so 2009, 2010, I started uh, this meme site called Lameme. That was just like the echoing the speed of just content and stuff being blown out there. And music always was the indicator of how every other industry will be moving at. Yeah. Right. And like we could see that, like the Spotify's, like that all echoed how Netflix and streaming film and like same with like how meme culture became like a thing it started to like move into like streetwear and like graphic design t-shirts you know like you have to be just making at the speed of the meme when that happened when meme culture became like fully crazy and like on instagram that's when like every brand every agency everything was like okay fuck it we don't have to care anymore yeah i don't know maybe that's how nfts are a good space to like be this thing that you just throw weird b-sides demos the things that aren't perfect yet out there yeah it's interesting because i think some people think that like i'm saying this is the best time you know with my account that i'm documenting that i'm almost living in the past and i'm like this is the best time there's never going to be anything else but i'm actually interested in helping new artists regain the power over their work and kind of be able to have that ability to disrupt the industry in their own way so this is why I asked this question, you know, because I just really would like to see the ball in the court of the artists who are making music. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's so important. In the conversations I've had with like Lena or like when we did that talk, we we're trying to understand like what, why, what was this magic? Where did it go away? And like, I personally thought that that pure time of like 
05 to 010 of the internet of the Cobra Snakes and like Mickey Digitals and Last Night's Party, even though they were documenting these spaces that were so like, oh, wow, I wish I was there. FOMO didn't really exist because like you knew that party was going to be going, Cinespace would happen or like the Studio B would still be there. There was these physical places that you know if you ever visited, you could go there and you'd be allowed in. There was no like literal or metaphorical velvet rope. Yes. You were allowed in these spaces. And I think once that happened of like going to the data mining, like I said, of the 2010s, that's when like the industry and everyone, Instagram, whatever, Twitter, they realized, okay, we could monetize FOMO, you know, yeah. and that's why you have these like tiers of VIP at every festival, right? The bottle service culture became such a thing, right? I don't know. I feel like raves or like house parties are coming back. I actually personally thought that was going to happen once everything loosened up quarantine wise, like you were allowed out. I thought like kids would be like throwing more house parties. Yeah. And like bands and DJs or whatever, like weird raves. And I think it is happening. Like, I think I'm just too old now to know where it is. But it seems like every venue, big club, like doubled down on that energy of like, let's make this super VIP exclusive, you know? Can you like tell me in your own words, why do you think we are seeing this sort of renewed interest in this time? Of the indie sleaze era? <laughs> yeah, of the indie sleaze era, of the blog house genre, of like the parties that are being thrown, the photography, the fashion, everything. Like, why do you think people are so interested in reexamining this point in history and time? One, I know like because everything was documented on the internet, it's really hard to like show a physical archive or history of it. So there needs to be this constant re-injecting into the internet conversation. Obviously, Cobra Snake and like Lena making, like they're making books and like physical things out there. I think that's important. But I think it's a reminder of it's okay for the cringe. Because obviously yeah. that era was like insanely cringy. More than 50% is probably really ashamed of that era. They're yeah. embarrassed of it. <laughs> yeah, some people I talk to say that. Yeah, I'm not personally. Oh, no, no, same with me. But whether it's like, you know, whatever fucked up, you know, lifestyle or mentalities and a lot of the shady shit that went down, that obviously. But I think what we're doing, like, we want to bring up the good elements of it and like showcase the things that have grown out of that era and still, and like still are growing, you know, Fool's Gold or like Chromio and all those guys. Like, it's amazing seeing their level of what like Chromio is doing now, like mentorship, yeah. you know, with like their label Juliet. I think that's super important to like showcase this, like, these are the things we saw. This is the things we did. This is what you should do to keep being you. And like, that's what I think everyone needs to like double down because, you know, everyone was really them back then. Like unapologetically trashy or trashy. Messy. And like, I think it's interesting because, like, going back to, like, the Justice mix, right, the Christmas one. Yeah. That whole era in general, they were good about showcasing, highlighting history of music. You know, like, yeah. whatever you're doing, making now is the culmination of all these amazing things that happened through this insane history of music. That was the same like Chromio. Like, they referenced really cool, odd things that no one was doing. Then. And I think once we stepped into, like, 2010s, everyone started to realize they have to like become their own island or their yeah. own. That's when like things started to like not be as referential or too quick of referencing. Yes. You know? And I think what we're doing now is reminding ourselves of like that there's this thing here, this 
powerful energy that we all have to keep adding to to the conversation. And I think that's what we're trying to do now is show that like that was the era when people started to reference things. And it's weird because I think Tumblr culture became the, even the death of the blog hype machine energy because like suddenly you're seeing images and hearing music or or like i told like one of my film friends you could see a screenshot of a wong kar wai film but you don't have to see the wong kar wai movie yeah and seeing it out of context it does something which is like all right it's kind of cool like this is mood board culture what's that developing here you know and okay you could like pick and choose a la carte these things that are you know, become you, but like, you're not getting the holistic experience or like trying to understand context versus like, you know, if you heard a soul wax remix in the club next to like a weird, like hollow note song, you start to like build your own story and mythology there. Yeah. So I always kind of equate when Tumblr became this thing that, and then which then turned into like mood board culture of like, you know, Jound and his site and then became Pinterest essentially. You know, you could just trace it all there that like these things became so granular and suddenly unspecial, you know? Yeah, actually, I say this all the time because people are like, oh, this was Tumblr culture. I'm like, no, because Mm-mm. this was an era informed by LiveJournal, MySpace, Friendster. I agree with you. I felt like Tumblr kind of spelled the end. Like it made the subculture the every moment in a sense. Like yeah. it was no longer this unique thing. It was shared widely. And it's funny you mentioned Wong Kar Wai because I noticed on your Instagram and Twitter that you are into this director mm-hmm. and I'm a huge fan as well. Is there a favorite film of yours by him? I mean, obviously In the Mood for Love and like Chunking Express, but I personally is probably Fallen Angels. There's something yes, about that's that. That's my favorite too. Literally, that's my favorite. It's interesting because it's the shortest of his movies. Yeah. And, but there's something so, the way it's like all these vignettes, you're allowed as the viewer to kind of create your own like i'm saying that going back creating your own story and myths i like that when there's that conversation there what wong kar wai is doing with you allowing your imagination to go off there yeah and i mean it's immersive it's awesome his, his worlds and like that's it too like going back to even like the blockhouse energy of like the mythology that's justice they did that so well yeah you know and like you still are trying to understand and figure that out you know yeah. Yeah. Or like, I mean, obviously, the greatest of all the mythologies of the Blockhouse era is Daft Punk, right? Yeah. And yeah. It's interesting. My friend David Rudnick, he's a crazy designer, and he did a lot of stuff for like Errol Alkin and fantasy, and he did my artwork for my first album for Good Night. We used to throw these Blockhouse parties in New York called City to City. He mentioned something about how Ram 2013, when that came out, that was like Daft Punk realizing like the runway of the future of like yeah. things to look forward to or like that runway had disappeared so that's why they were like let's go back yeah and i thought that was like a pretty crazy like astute observation of that and obviously we learned last year that like they did their runway of imagination and inspiration did run out yeah i guess even going back to like the reason why i started the blog i wanted to meet Daft Punk. <laughs> <laughs> and i'm lucky enough i have a few times that's amazing i guess like even 2010 so like i going back like i come back from college i'm trying to i realize i want to play music again i moved back to new york and this band jamaica they're from france they had a song i think i like you too and like they were called pony pony they needed a bass player to tour in the states in 2010 
And I knew them also because Xavier produced their album along with Daft Punk's engineer. Yeah. And I knew the guys just from MySpace. We were messaging and I was like, oh yeah, dude, I play bass. So I literally auditioned via iChat video and I got the gig. It was fucking crazy. My first tour ever. And I remember I got to play Echoplex in LA. We played Treasure Island with Mike Snow LCD sound system. This is when LCD announced their breakup. Yeah. Which I will say the whole reunion is like such a betrayal to me. Of like, I know, it kind of is to me too. <laughs> it's funny, last week or two weeks ago, DFA had their party in New York, the 20 year. And I went and I was introduced to James Murphy as Asian Dan and he was definitely confused by that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, anyway, so that tour was really crazy with Jamaica. I found out they even asked JFK from DFA to play yeah. bass and he couldn't do it. So I was the second choice. <laughs> you know what? Sometimes the second choice is the best choice. I mean, you know? uh, thank God it happened. <laughs> we, we played with like bloody beat roots in Chicago. Yeah, sick. But then I remember we came to Toronto to Wrong Bar. I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh yeah, maybe. I've been to Wrong Bar plenty of times. Yeah, I remember that summer I was like living up there 2008. I would go there and like yeah, that whole crew up there was awesome. Yeah, everyone in Toronto is so fresh. I think it goes back. Everyone is so willing to, like, if you come to your city, you're like, you're part of the crew. Yeah. And that was, like, always such, like, the amazing part of, like, wait, all I did was start a blog. Why are we chill with each other? And, like, that just showed, like, the power of music, as, like, corny as that is, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, no, you. I completely agree. But, um, yeah, going back. So we play Wrong Bar, and I remember, like, our sound guy, Peter, who was Daft sound guy, he wasn't there, and he was like, Oh, he's Peter had to stay in New York. And we like we get down to New York the next day and he's like, Oh, you wanna come to the Phoenix show at MSG? <laughs> I was like, Yeah, sure. Like we all got like guest list and everything. And I remember we were like in the elevator backstage and I was like literally standing next to like Gimon and Toma. <laughs> and, wow. and that was it. And like, you know, I got to see them Daft Punk's last ever performance. That's crazy. And then just like hanging out with them like all night after and like talking with Gimon about Todd Edwards and Steely Dan and like, yeah, it was pretty wild. Like they already in their heads, I could tell were figuring out the next steps of like Daft Punk then. And yeah. And then, you know, I'd run into like Gimon at random parties and like a Kitsune party like a year later. And then it was the Tonight Hudmo and Lunas' show, their first ever show in New York. And I remember like we were standing in the balcony and Kanye was next to me and like my friend. And then Gimon was there. I tapped Gimon. I was like, oh, hey, man, Gimon, like, it's Asian Dan. And then he comes up right to my face and he goes, I know, I can see you. <laughs> In, like, the most deadpan, like, old school French, like, humor. And it was fucking hilarious. Yeah, you've even messaged me about like being introduced to Nicole Richie. Like, how yeah. often do you find that people <laughs> kind of react to your introduction of your persona and kind of the moniker that you've decided to I mean, go it's by? It's pretty funny, especially now in this age of like everyone wondering, like, oh, well, is that okay if I call you that? I'm like, yeah, I picked that. And <laughs> my name is Dan and I am Asian. <laughs> like, it's really interesting now in this sort of like very sensitive era people live in. Yeah. But I mean, I love it. It's hilarious. It's yeah. Weird. Yeah. I love that you talk about bass because this on my podcast, I'm always kind of talking about how, like, if you're really in the dumps or in the case of the pandemic, you're wondering what to do with mm -hmm. your time or you want to pick up something, it's like pick up an instrument. 
And so I started learning bass Amazing. at the start of the pandemic. Amazing. Yes. It's like I've tried to learn other instruments, piano and guitar, but bass was the thing that like stuck. It was the thing that I kept going back to and I really enjoyed playing. And of course you play bass and I'm trying to show the love to <laughs> bass on my podcast, especially because it's like an instrument I sort of associate with this time, not just synths, like obviously the synth played a big role in this era, but there were a lot of bands that were kind of just playing with bass, like Death From Above, as you've mentioned, and even just thinking back to the Scott Pilgrim oh, film God, where, yes. you know, Michael Cera plays bass and there's the bass battle in that film that is amazing. What song would you recommend to me to learn on bass as a bass player yourself? Bass is about, like, it's the groove, it's the dance. Like, you want to dance to yeah. it. So, like, I mean, one of the coolest was, like, the Raptors, you know, House of Jealous Lovers or something, you know? Oh, okay. Like, it's such a simple yeah. bass line. I gotta learn, learn that one. Super easy. It's like one or two notes. It's like it's the feel. You gotta get that down. And then, I mean, you should learn "Romantic Rights" by Death of a It's such a groovy, crazy bass line. Actually, what I have been learning on bass currently is "Pitch the Baby" by Cocktoo Twins. Oh, so. amazing. You like shoegaze. Mm -hmm. I've discovered that from kind of exploring your <laughs> Twitter and your Instagram, and you just released this EP that I really, really loved, by Thank the way, you. Under Good oh. Night is so good, Tangent, just like phenomenal. And I was reading that the inspiration behind your EP was to create music that could be used for film scores. And I find that very interesting. Like, what are some film scores that inspired you to create oh, music wow, with yeah. this purpose? Okay, obviously, the Lost in Translation soundtrack. Yes. Super important. And very interesting. Super interesting. <laughs> and then, like, obviously, the Garden State soundtrack. Mm -hmm. You know, like I was young, this is high school. I was trying to understand what's the difference between the score and the soundtrack, you know? Yeah. And then even I would say like the OC, that was super important. Like in the things they were like, I remember Interpol would be on there or like, you yes. know, LCD sound system. And like, you wouldn't expect being thrown into the mainstream. So like, obviously I'm like, oh, whoa, like soundtracks, what are these? And I'm like, that brought me into like that world. But then oh, I was like, oh, what is a score here? And then you know, seeing the score elements on like Lost in Translation by like Kevin Shields did some stuff there and like Brian Reitzel, those guys did like really interesting and like scores that aren't traditionally string instruments, you know, anything we'd remember. Yeah. Then. So like I remember like Johan Johansson, he's the guy that did, he unfortunately passed away, but he did a lot of crazy stuff for like Sicario, right? Or like, um, mm -hmm. I think he did, yeah. And he was supposed to do the Blade 2049. And anyway, he I remember he released a weird indie sort of experimental project. And I remember that being really interesting. That brought me into the score world there. And I've always wanted to like, oh, how can I score a film? Like, or do I even have the knowledge to do that? So I went to Emerson College and that was like very big film school. A lot of my friends ended up doing film stuff. So like my really good friend Orson, him and I, I've been scoring all his films as of late. Being like we had such similar tastes and he he was there with me at that party, at the Ed Banger fourth year party in Paris, 2007. Yeah, so like he gave me so much freedom and it was so cool like figuring out how can I make something moody, ethereal with like guitar and synthesizers and bass. And that was my first foray into that. It's wild, like I have a really good friend and I went to high school. He was, Rich Vreeland's his name and he's Disaster Piece is his moniker oh my god i was yeah. just about to talk it follows so rich did that and rich and rich and i had a band <laughs> in high school together and like we would play us like post rock and like you know all that crazy like just instrumental rock music and rich got really into that world and he's amazing and he 
did a score for this Ben Affleck Netflix movie called Triple Frontier. Oh, I've seen that. Which messaged me like Christmas 2019. He's like, yo, I need bass on this. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I had to learn all this stuff really quickly. And he goes, yeah, okay, uh, here, I'll send you all the stems to the music. He's like, oh, by the way, Lars plays drums on this. And I'm like, Lars? He's like, yeah, yeah, Lars from Metallica. So (laughs) I'm playing like bass with like on these tracks with Lars, which is That's crazy. Insane. So it's really, it's, I've just fallen in into like the the film world and I've been like super lucky to like have been given so much freedom and as of late too I like even fell into like scoring stuff for like fashion so like this past fall fashion week I did a big thing for this brand uh, Peter Doe Korean American designer and that's where I met my friend Steph Shu who sings on in the, in my mind and Steph's been like a really great like musical partner and she's just been crazy inspirational and yeah, I remember like I sent her the instrumental that track in my mind and she was like, okay, I want to sing on this. And she literally sang it on her iPhone. And that's it's so good. I have the chills when I hear that song, by the way. That, thank you. <laughs> she did the music for this Vogue China thing. Her and I both did it together. This like video piece that came out back in September too. And yeah, she's really awesome. And I'm helping her finishing up her stuff too. So hopefully in the next few months, that'll come out. And then obviously we're trying to finish this new Goodnight album and I'm pretty pumped about that because I think it's definitely going to move more into that dream pop song shoegaze space. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. I don't know how to get music out there anymore. <laughs> just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, like, I'm a huge cool. fan already. So, Thank you. Yeah. you know, just keep at it. And you've mentioned composing this music for like fashion pieces and you composed music for the Vogue China September issue. What was it like creating music for a fashion inspired piece? Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not a world I'd expect myself to ever like end up in, but it was like cool. Like they throw all these references and I'm like, okay, I'll try. But at the end, I'm just like, I could only do this type of thing, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd be making like crazy noisy walls of sound with guitar and I'm like, okay, this could be like, string sort of feeling or like echo the sort of like sentiments they're looking for but i mean i just love the idea of shoegaze because you literally turn on every guitar pedal i'm a big <laughs> guitar pedal nerd souls are co-producer oh god please <laughs> introduce really me okay. i will show i'll yes. send them photos of my collection <laughs> yeah so like that was it it's like how can i just shape sounds that way and I, you know obviously kevin shields and what he's done with guitar and walls of sound that's always like influenced me too that engulfing feeling or like even what like cock two twins do that was always the sort of energy i was going for and i even remember like when i was doing that score for the peter doe show back in september i didn't know what to what like sort of direction i was like what would soul wax do yeah. <laughs> that's what i said because like you know they that they were a big inspiration too because like they've done so many yeah things. like i think soul wax is like one of the dudes that came out of that era like so fully them and so oh god they're so good yeah actually you're not the only one who's you know wax poetic about soul wax it was even dave one he was just previously honestly on the if you he was- rewatched if you haven't watched a uh, part of the week i never died like recently it still holds up and i think that's like a super crazy good representation of the time of like going back to what i was saying like it didn't feel like FOMO. You thought you were there. You think you were one of those people in the club, in the crowd sweating. And like that sort of, I don't know how they did it. No, I love that. And you mentioned Kevin Shields, who, you know, Loveless album, mm-hmm. one of my favorites, like amazing vocalist, yeah. guitarist. What do you like about Shoegaze? Like, what is it 
that really appeals to you. It's definitely that wall of sound washing over you feeling. Yeah. It's dreamy. That's it. Somehow they nail it, that whole genre of it. Like simple, like it's it's distortion, but like not in an aggressive way. It like the way it just hits you in the most like it's like the most ASMR, I would say, of like I agree. guitar music. Yes. yes. I'll say that's something I think the world has gotten good at, like understanding sound design production in that sense now. Like how do you tickle people's ears now? Like ASMR is actually pretty crazy good at that. <laughs> like like the same it way, is, like, you know, yeah. you listen to like a Billie Eilish track, the way her vocals are like produced or like, I don't know. Anything, any pop production now, it's so well done. And sound design, I think, has been crazy important and has been pushed forward because of technology. And yeah, and I feel like that's connected to that whole sort of like spirit that like what shoegaze does. Yeah, the Igaraki films oh, are yes. really what got me into shoegaze. Like I watched those and I was like, I have to make a playlist that kind of sums up There's all these films. And then an amazing slow dive track on, I forgot what movie, but it's like a weird remix edit, like something the Locust, like Splendiferous remix, and it sounds like an Aphex Twin song. Yes, you should. Yeah. It's it's insane. It's pretty cool. Like Slow Dive was like on that like wave too back then. I find it interesting that also like Errol Aachen, mm. as you've talked about him, produced their most recent albums of what is it? Uh, oh, uh, Ride. Yeah. Ride, yeah. yes, ride. Yes, they're like this underrepresented totally. band in my opinion, and yeah. shoegaze. Like they are very much. If you look up you know, best shoegaze albums, you're going to see them. But like, I don't often hear yeah. people talk about them. And their music is very, very much in that element that, you know, especially showcased in this Greg Araki yeah. film. So yeah, if anyone's listening, you should just definitely check out those albums. Also, Errol too, I think is like an unsung here. Like the fact like he would do yes. produce bands too in that time of like also producing like bangers, like Late of the Pier and like Mystery Jets. Those albums are amazing. I think Late of the Pure is like one of my favorite things to ever ha come out of that whole era. And that album, Fantasy Black Channel, is still so, so good. And Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree completely. If you could work with like one director or even a fashion designer and kind of compose Whoa. something for their show or their film, who would that be and why? Whoa. I mean, I love Yoji. I would love to, but I know he's like very like old school and like an acoustic guitar is all he needs. And I think that's pretty sick too. I would love to do something for that or like all the Japanese brands. I love that stuff. It's always very surprising. I think that that's the best part about like fashion. They're so good at like juxtaposing the sonics with whatever the fashion is. It was always unexpected. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. And film wise, oh my God. Wow. That's, that's a difficult question. <laughs> I could see you doing some sort of like Paul Thomas Anderson, like seriously for real. Like I, I would could see love music. to do. I mean, okay. So that goes back like Johnny Greenwood and everything he's done for that. PTA yeah, like, Phantom I, Thread, yeah. Oh, God. So I would love to do a score with strings next. And oh, that's like something I know it's like, it's so out of my wheelhouse, but I want that challenge. So I would love to do something like that. But yeah, I don't know. God. Well, you have quite the pedal collection. So <laughs> I'd be interested to see what you could kind of put together. This leads to a question that I've been dying to ask you. Like, I... I'm obviously very new into learning bass, uh -huh. so I'm just trying to save up for a bass amp. But I eventually want to buy some pedals. What's your desert island oh pedal? Like aside from stuff like tuners, you can't you can't mention tuners. My secret pedal that I love is it's this New Zealand company called Crowther Audio. Okay, it's the drummer of the band Split Ends, who's also like part of that band Crowded House. He made this pedal called the Prunes and Custard, and it's like somewhere between like a 
synthy distortion, like funky. Put it on a guitar and you could sound like Billy Corgan, or you could put it on a bass and you sound like a weird like Herbie Hancock sounding synth. It's like such a crazy versatile pedal. And I don't even know if they make it anymore, but it's a really cool pedal. It's called the Prunes and Custard and it's called a Harm- it's truly hipster. <laughs> I don't make it anymore. It's called a harmonic <laughs> generator intermodular modulator. Okay, sick. Yeah. So it's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, I think that would be the one I would take. Or a chorus pedal. Just because if you want like my Peter Hook cock two twin sounding bass sounds. That's true. Yes, I was thinking you might say that. I think, yeah, the Dimension C. That's my favorite boss pedal. Yeah. What is your personal bloghouse anthem or like what's the oh. song that sums up this era and really defines it sonically? It's funny because I did back in like December on my like little DJ radio show, I put together like a whole like four hour bloghouse retrospective of like my favorite ones. We'll have to link to it. And it it was super interesting hearing back the songs that were amazing back then, but they did not age well. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a lot of them because like if you think about it like they're really bad quality mp3s or like made with like slamming the compressor really distorted and crunchy and weird and a lot of that didn't have low end which was crazy because we thought that music was like crazy heavy but it's not heavy didn't the strokes first album not have like a lot of low end like is this it? i mean like, dude he, they did crazy stuff the drums on hard to explain are run through a little pv amplifier all the vocals like Julian was doing was through that. They were very like lo-fi industrial on that album. That's why I love that. But um, shit, I don't know. Like, I mean, Alan Brax and Fred Falk, whatever they do is like amazing. The Fred Falk remix of Whitest Boy Alive is yes. insane. Obviously because- I was referenced in a meme recently. I can't remember what the meme was about. But oh yeah, was. yeah. I think I sent you that meme. Yeah. <laughs> if it, was, if it was the Indies Lee's thing, like the, like the canon of saying like, oh, people- yeah. Who, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Fred Falk is amazing. For me personally, I mean, you can't, we are your friends. Like, they did something right there. Like, Justice figured yeah. out, like, how do you make a song out of a little, like, vocal loop and just turn it into, like, an anthem that's so, like, pure and fun, you know? Yeah. One that aged crazy well, I will say, is A Track's remix of Heads Will Roll. Yes. He figured that out. Like, that song is engineered scientifically to work in the club you know yeah and that's an amazing one sebastian i think is always crazy good the way he's done remixes like that claxons remix he did of golden scans is so underrated it sounds like him trying to do a timbaland beat i always love that there's one that didn't age well i think was the bloody beats roots remix of timbaland <laughs> miscommunication which i remember that song was so amazing back then but it did it i don't know it just didn't age well Mastercraft, I oh god, I was listening to the Mastercraft readings of Annie. Yes, I love that. That one I feel like is a underrated Mastercraft remix because it's a little like it's more of them trying to do French touch in like a very like chopped up, slinky, very like not aggressive way for them, and I I think that's an underrated one for them. We got to put these all together in a playlist to accompany this podcast because that's what I love to do is collaborate with other people I would and put together. Straight up make a mix for you. I would do. It oh, too. sweet! I would love that. That would be like, oh, thank you. No, I would love to. <laughs> Let's do that, do that. because Let's... a lot of these songs you cannot find on streaming platforms. That's true. Yeah, because every blog has been erased. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been so great talking to you. I've learned so much and I was so looking forward to this podcast because we have a lot in common. Just looking through your socials and stuff, I was like, there's so many cool things we could talk about. And I'd love to actually have you back on the pod some other time where we can talk about like 
more about music and movies and what you're up to. Thank you so much for chatting with us. And you can check out Agent Dan's work on Instagram and his EP on Bandcamp. Yes. And did you want to plug yourself in any other way that maybe I've forgotten to do efficiently? No. I mean, that's it. AsianDan.com. I still blog, guys. Yeah. I still post any music that I've been liking up there. Yeah, then Instagram, Twitter, Asian Dan. And then my band, Good Night, which is with my brother and I. We're finishing up our album, hopefully out by the end of the year. And we have our EP that just came out called Tangent. That's out there. It's so there. good. You have to check it out. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, no, thank you for having me on. This is really cool remembering these crazy, awesome times. And it is still such a crazy good time, I will say. And like, I literally still talk to everyone that I met then, which is the, oh, yeah. the best me part. Too. It was such a beautiful, pure time. It was very community-driven and accessible, and that's what I loved about it. And hopefully we meet soon in person. Thank you so much again, Asian Dan. Thank you. See you later. See you later. See you later.